The scripture reading today is from Isaiah 58, 1 through 12. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression to the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, the day, behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into their house? When you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness, and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually, and satisfy your desire in scorched places, and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruin shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This is the word of the Lord. you uh, join me in a word of prayer? Father, as we look to your scriptures, we look to your prophet's words, we pray that you would meet with us, you'd open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts, that we might see you, hear you, and uh, feel your presence this morning. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, that was a bit of a heavy text, wasn't it? When we get into some of those uh, Old Testament prophet text, it feels like it's a very different world than some of the teachings of Jesus, but I, I'm going to hopefully show that there's a connection later on this morning. But I do want to start off with, I have good news for you. That wasn't written to you. I mean, it's written for you, but it wasn't written to you. That was written to a group of people at a specific time, 
behaving a certain way, yielding a certain result. That was written to a group of people that had a particular set of issues that the prophet was calling out and addressing. I do not think that 2,700 years ago, Isaiah was thinking about a small gathering of, of faithful followers of the Lord in, in southern, southeastern Pennsylvania. So that's the good news. All of that very direct, very clear chastisement at some points, criticism at others, the setting up in the fall with a little bit of a buildup at the end was not a direct word to you today. So that's the good news. So now let's go to the heavier part. What is the indirect word for us today? How does this passage from Isaiah show us not only what was going on then, but what is God's heart for his people then, a thousand years ago, 500 years ago, and at a small gathering of faithful followers in southeastern Pennsylvania today? What does this mean? What does it look like? You see, 2,500 years ago, they were coming back from Babylon. They were coming back from captivity. The walls were destroyed. And now there's this new hierarchy. There's this vacuum where people are flooding back into. And there were different people that were setting up. Well, this may seem odd, but there were some people that were trying to take advantage of the situation for their own gain. I know that's nothing we ever hear about today. They were... They were reinstalling their religious practices and their traditions and their, and their religious ways. And they actually were considering themselves to be faithful followers. In previous chapters, God chastised them for their unfaithfulness, their direct contradictions to the ways of the Lord. But here, he's now honing in and narrowing in on their practice. I was listening in recently to a podcast, and Esau Macaulay, he's a, he's a professor at Wheaton University, or college, I'm not sure which it is. He's a professor at Wheaton, and he was talking about uh, MLK and how some people try to co-opt Martin Luther King for their own devices. They don't take the full breadth of who he was and what he said, and they just want to take the bits and pieces that, well, match and mirror their own thoughts. So Esau... Macaulay wrote, wrote an article in the New York Times, and some people gave it some good backlash. They kind of ridiculed and said, look, this is how it, it means to be progressive these days, is to try to take all of Martin Luther King's words as what he wanted to say for himself. Okay, they didn't say it that way, but that's what they were saying. You see, he warned against taking the words of someone and just the parts that you like, because if you take just the parts of you like, you're not actually embracing the person you're embracing the person reformed to be like yourself, right? Now, that's fine when we're dealing with a historical figure in recent context where you may like or not like or dislike, it's fine. But what about when we go to the scriptures? Is it possible that we can turn to the scriptures, we can turn to the words of Jesus, we can turn to the prophets and just take the juicy parts that we like and reform them in a way that matches and mirrors us. So this is what Esau Macaulay, he's a college professor, and this is what he says to his students often. If you are reading the words of Jesus, if you are reading the scriptures and you are not made uncomfortable, if you are not regularly being poked and disturbed, you might be reading 
and creating a Jesus that looks a lot like yourself. You might be reading and making a God in your own image. Now, I'm going to throw this out there. Is that something that is easy to do? Yes. Is that something that is common to do? Absolutely. And what do we call this practice of creating a God in your own image? Idolatry. Right? Esau Macaulay was challenging us not to make an idol of God, an idol of Jesus, to not craft him to become a God in our own image. By the way, if, has anyone ever challenged you and said, oh, we need to start poking the bear of, the, of, the, of your own personal idols? Have you ever been offended by somebody who tried to call you out for idolatry? I have. And I was really like, what, who do you? I am a faithful Christian. I do devotions. I show up on Sundays and Wednesdays. Thank you. Sometimes Sunday nights even. And not just for the special services. But I also do show up for the special services, like the low-attended ones. Ash Wednesday. Mm -hmm. Maundy Thursday. I even go to those. I am a faithful Christian. What do you mean, idols? I've been offended this way. It is interesting that when somebody starts to find your particular idol, we're often not aware that it exists. And because we're not aware that it exists, they're just kind of hitting one of those little precious points where if we were Gollum, we might call it our precious and huddle around it. And if you try to take it from us, oh, don't take, don't take away our idols, right? So the key to knowing how to follow God is to be a constant examiner, a constantly open person to the idols which we craft. We like to quote Calvin about idols, don't we? Calvin is the one that said that the human heart is a constant generator of, of idols. And that sounds all well and good when we're aiming that at someone else. But it's a lot harder when we try to look in the mirror and try to recognize, dear Jesus, I do love you, but where have I tried to co-opt you? Where have I tried to restrain you? Where have I tried to clean you up to make you not so wild, radical, frustrating, intimidating? I think this passage might possibly pick at some of those idols that we might have in our world, in our culture, in our faith communities. What could make us uncomfortable here in this text, really? I mean... Let's just start at the beginning there. Uh, verse 2, for day after day, these people, they seek me out and they seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. He's acknowledging these people are God seekers. They are God seekers. They are faithful worshipers. They are studiers of the scripture. They are implementers of the faith practices. They have their devotions. They have their fasting times and set up. And that's what God is picking on. Because I did a little study. Only twice that I know of is God actually called his people to fast. On, on Yom Kippur, and then there was a couple other days. But the fasting is usually something that the kings or somebody else calls them to. But if you measure that up against the volume of times where God says, 
how we should treat our neighbor, how we should treat the poor, how we should treat the immigrant, how we should treat the enemy, how we should treat the imprisoned, the oppressed, the vulnerable. Uh, the scales don't even begin to tip in favor or towards a balance. Verse 2 and 3, they are sincere and faithful worshipers. They believe that God is present with them. But what do they do? Verse 3, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Why have we been faithful, God, and you have not shown up and given us what, what you owe us? Okay, nobody in their nice Sunday morning mindset says, oh, the good Lord owes me for church attendance. The good Lord owes me for tithing. We, we, we're savvy enough to not create a God that is merely a vending machine. However, what happens when something hits us with crisis? How do we act? What happens when we... Examine the circumstances of our lives. Do we ever find ourselves saying, but God, I was, why is this? And some of us have gone through really, really challenging, challenging times that can challenge us. And I am not here to diminish that. You can see I have some young kids of my own. I have some teenage years to go through. Oh, good Lord, my 13-year-old just laughed a little bit maniacally. That's... That's very intimidating. <laughs> if you've survived this, please, I'm open ears. Um, so I am not here to diminish the pain and the realities of how life can throw curveballs, how life can throw pain, how lives can hurt. And it's so easy and natural for us to think, God, if you love me, you won't let me go through that. Right? If you love me, you won't let the wars happen. If you love me, you won't let the famine come. If you love me, my kids will turn out all right. If you love me, my business won't fail. I thought you loved me. Why is there cancer in my body? If you love me, why were they taken from me? It's so natural and easy. So I am not here to throw shade or throw blame against anyone for such a moment. But it's so easy to slide into that and to join the people of Isaiah 58. Hmm. They believed in God. They practiced the faith. But he wants to remind them what a true faithfulness looks like the true fasting that he calls it. This is the kind of fast I have chosen, verse 5. Only a day for people to... Is, is this the kind of fasting I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed, for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call an acceptable day in the Lord? No, this is not the kind of fasting I have chosen. But this is what I have chosen, to loosen the chains of injustice untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, and break every yoke. By the way, does that make you think of any other passages? Does that awaken any echoes? I hope so. 
Verse 7, it's not to, is it not to share? Is my fast for you not to share your food with the hungry and to provide for the poor and the wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood. I love that he says, from your own flesh and blood, recognizing that that person that we turn our back on so often is our fellow brother or sister in humanity. It's hard to think about it this way, but I know there was a big kerfluffle when one, uh, I guess, famous Christian with a large Twitter following decided to make a tweet saying that the baby in your nursery around the corner is as important as the baby in Syria 5,000 miles away. And that is a little hard for us, especially if that baby is our child, or that baby is our grandchild, or that baby is our neighbor's child, or if that baby is our baptized member of our church. It's easy for us to elevate and to think about, well, this is baby's more important because I know them. But is it more important than the little Muslim baby raised in Syria to God? By this verse, it says, how do you turn your back on your own flesh and blood? It does make wars a little bit harder to deal with and harder to accept and harder to compromise with. It does make any forms of violence and death harder to execute as a Christian, as a God-fearer, because his fast is to share our food and our life and to see them in their need. By the way, you notice he doesn't say see them in their need and determine if they deserve to be there. He didn't ask why they're naked. He didn't ask why they're hungry. See them, feed them, clothe them. Then your light will break forth like the dawn. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Does this passage remind you of any New Testament passages? It does for me. It reminds me when Jesus started and inaugurated his ministry, when he was in his hometown of Nazareth, and he went to the synagogue, and he opened, and he called for the, 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 the scroll of Isaiah to be brought, and he found the place where he read it, and he said, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and to re recovery of sight for the blind and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and said, today this is filled fulfilled in your midst. Jesus' agenda for his kingdom was laid out using the prophet's voice. And the same prophet here reminds his people, true faith, true faithfulness, true worship isn't about your spiritual disciplines and piety. It isn't about your worship services. It isn't about your quiet times. It isn't about your fasting. It is about seeing the humanity of your neighbor and loving them for their needs. <laughs> then the, your light will shine forth like the dawn. That is the difficult part about this. You see, it's easy for us to think that what we need in this church and in this time, what we need is good doctrine. And we do. We do need good doctrine. Bad doctrine just leads us to crazy ideas that take us on 
detours that never come back to the main road of following God. But sometimes we think that good doctrine is enough. Sometimes we think that good practices are enough. Sometimes we think that if we just have this holy huddle, this silo of godliness, it's enough. And we can ignore what's going on around us. But we're asked to feed, to release, to set free, to stand with. We are asked to meet our brothers and sisters where they are. You see, this is where our global awareness is kind of a, a, blessed, a blessed curse. How often are we aware of troubles that are going on around the other side of the globe? How often are we aware of just how intricately layered the issues are? I mean, if we think about this, the, the, the environmental impacts of all that we do with our commerce and shopping, but if we just shut it all down, the amount of people that will starve and die and disease, this idea that we have all these great blessings that, but yet are done at the expense of somebody else around the globe who's making it for us, it's just, it can be overwhelming, can't it? When we see injustices around this world, it can be absolutely overwhelming. It can be numbing, it can be paralyzing, it can take away the, 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 the vision to believe that God is able to do something, and it can put us in a position where we have to either become a social justice warrior where everything is a cause and we are just no fun at any party whatsoever. Where'd you get that cup? What are you going to do with that cup? You could have used your finger to stir that. I know it's hot. For the record, I'm married to an environmental science teacher, and I work for a snow company that throws salt on the ground so that snow that'll melt in 30 minutes will melt in 10. Sorry, honey, it's a job. When I tell my colleagues in the snow industry about this, they go, oh, I bet conversations at home are fun. I'm like, yes, and I lose. But seriously, there are so many problems in this world. We understand, I mean, we're still in the wake of another situation where in our own country, we need to just stop and lament the ending of a life through the hands of an authority. But what, what can we do? Should we throw out a Facebook post again to say that we're, you know, mad? Should we throw out another tweet that says something should be fixed? Or should we throw a rebuttal to say that we don't need it fixed, we don't, we need is, what we need is more Jesus, and just leave it at that on a social media post? We live in a confusing time. I'm going to grant you that. We live in a difficult time. I'm going to grant you that. So if I can try to help narrow it down to what we can take away from the prophet for us here as a community of people situated in southeastern Pennsylvania in the year 2023. Here's what we can do. We can try to make it a little bit less complex, but not watered down. Look local. Yes, of course, if we can impact and help the, 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 the humanitarian efforts in Ukraine or Sudan or anywhere else, when there's a travesty around the world, send some money. Absolutely. But when it comes to doing the work of Isaiah 58, when it comes to loosening the cords and the yoke of oppression, he's not meaning everywhere else but local. He's meaning start in your Jerusalem, then go to your Samaria, 
and then the outer, ranks, outer ranges of the world. Start local and become aware of what's happening. What county are we in here, by the way? I knew it. I see I got it right. Chester County. We weren't sure if it was Chester or Chester Brook. Yeah, we're from Jersey. Sorry, forgive us. <laughs> but here in Chester County, I know that this is an incredibly beautiful little town. Is Westchester part of the county? Because I drive through that to get here, right? It's a very different look, isn't it? But our county officials have the same kind of impact. So let's think local. Let's think what's going on here in Kennett Square. Let's think what's going on right outside the, the borders of Kennett Square. Let's just try to figure out what's going on here and be aware of our neighbors. And then, and then be tangible. Because here's the problem. If you're, here's where the, the idols might get really like poked a little bit. This is where the, 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 the prophet gets a little bit of annoying right here. Because he doesn't want us merely to assent to something. He doesn't want us to merely affirm something or sing a song and pass a plate. He wants us to get involved with the person that makes me uncomfortable and I don't know what to do with. So I'm more tempted to turn my back on them. Maybe not out of judgment, maybe not out of arrogance, but maybe out of powerlessness and fear and unknown. You see, we have to be local, we have to be tangible. It's gonna cost us time, it's gonna cost us money, it's gonna cost you status, it's gonna cost you energy, it's going to open up a world where you have to tra traverse over and through fears. You're gonna to have to trust God is with you through that traversing the fear. And then it has to be active. This fasting that the Lord requires is local, tangible, and it is active. We cannot give in to being merely numb or to be paralyzed by the volume that we see. God has not called you to fix everything. Right? Believe that. God has not called us to fix everything. That is the job of God. But he has called us to participate with him where he places you. Did the good Samaritan go out on a, on a hike today saying, boy, let's go find us someone that got beat up today? No. He happened upon him and then chose to do what was right by the circumstances life gave him. That is how we do that. Don't get numb or paralyzed and take the next step to do what God has given you today. And then, well, let's see, there's something that I read once. Um, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has a... Um, what is this? Oh, yeah, you know that one. Good. Um, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough worries of its own. And who do we trust to deal with tomorrow? God. So I'll tell you, a lot of us like to have our lives in nice, neat boxes. I bet some of you are the, I would, if I walked over to your house right now and opened up your garage door, I could take a photo for Garages Are Us. <laughs> some of you have the most beautifully organized, like probably with like tools with little outlines drawn on the pegboard. I mean, that, I, I, I love going to your garages because they are so different than I live. And I wish I could be you. But the, Jesus did not wire me to be that way. And if that is, if you like things in order, oh, this is extra hard for you. Because getting in the lives of other people, 
They don't bring order, do they? People are a mess. And people who are a mess are even more of a mess than the people who are faking that they're not a mess. Actually, maybe it's the other way around, because the people who are a mess are at least honest. I'm a mess, and you're just like, okay, we can start there. The people who are pretending they're not a mess, you got to wade through it for a while while they're faking it, for then it falls apart, and then it's a crisis. Shoot, both sides are a mess. Okay, so we're all in this together. We're a mess. So keep it local. Keep it tangible. Get involved in the mess and be active. Don't just write a check. Don't just tweet a response. Stay off social media. It's a mess. It's a cesspool anyway. Just avoid it and just tell people good things and happy things and pictures of puppies <laughs> and children with puppies. Great. We cannot fix every problem, can we? But here's what we can do. And here's my last final wrap-up thoughts. We can see the poor. We can see them eye to eye, face to face, person to person. We can see the imprisoned. Have you ever been to a jail? It's nerve-wracking the first time you ever go in. Absolutely nerve-wracking. All those doors and clanking doors, you go in, and the one shuts behind you, now you're in. And you go to the next one, now you're in more, and then all the different rules. I've got some good jail stories, they're fun. I mean, they're sad. I mean, they're good, there's some good ones. Boy, was I nervous the first time I ever went in. But when you see that they're a person who have a life, who have an eye, who have a soul, who have the image of God imprinted in them. When we see the oppressed as people, as neighbors, when we see immigrants, legal and illegal, as human beings and neighbors. So here's what we do. We see them, we stand with them, even if the issues are complex and the solutions are murky. We don't use our politics or our ideologies to distance ourselves from standing with the hurting and standing with the oppressed and standing with the impoverished. We don't have to know how to fix it to stand with them, do we? And sometimes standing with is all they need. We aid without determining merit. We don't choose who to help because, well, there's a better ROI on it. What kind of return of investment am I gonna get by investing in this person's life? Oh, I know, I get that feeling because you don't want to throw, you have limited resources, you don't want to throw your energies into someone who's probably just gonna throw it all away. Well, let's go back and think what Jesus did. With his resources, he invested it in us. And we're a mess, remember? We already covered that. See the poor, stand with them, aid without determining merit, and then let your light break through like the dawn. Let your light take, break through like the dawn. It's, um, it's our desire that the world around us would see Jesus in us. It's our desire that the world would see that God loves them and that Jesus came to bring forth and break forth a new world that they can enter then they can feel seen by the one who made them. They can know that they are loved by the crea their creator, that they can be washed clean of anything that is hurt, and they, they can have a, a hope for eternal future life that is with God and whole, that ultimately will be a life where every tear is wiped away and all sadness is washed. We want that for them. So let me just share. I think the best path to that
is through the fasting of Isaiah 58, more than the fasting at the beginning of the chapter. I'm going to close with reading 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. My old mentor, he was the first that pointed out that verse to me. I think if I was a Gen Zer, I would probably pick a nice spot on my forearm to tattoo this phrase. Um, but I'm a little old for that, so I, I haven't done that yet. I'll, I'll get around to it. Take, they need to live generous and giving and invested lives in others. Why? So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. That echoes to me so that the, their light may break forth like the dawn. Friends, let us be a bizarre and unique group of people who make our faith have to be expressed tangibly, locally, and actively, where we see the poor, we see the yokes, and we stand with them, even if we can't fix it. Amen? Lord, be with us, because it's so easy for me to say this, Lord, and I know that I have unearthed my own idols. Forgive me for trying to make you concerned about what I'm concerned about. And Lord, help me to care what you care about. Help me to see how you see. Help me to love how you love. Lord, you've given us these lives, and you've asked us to pour them out like a drink offering back to you. And so, Lord, give us the courage to take that step today to see and to stand with and to love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.